Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, Chris Hockman, a member of our producers team, and I sit down with the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Wyant to discuss Luke 17 through 24. Jennifer is the associate pastor of Birmingham United Methodist Church in Milton, Georgia. Jennifer received a Master's of Divinity from Candler School of Theology and a PhD in New Testament from Emory University. She is married to her husband, Guy, and they have two sons. Our conversation covers a gamut of topics in Luke, the parables distinct to Luke, the kingdom of God, Luke's impression of wealth and possessions, the encounter of Jesus at Emmaus, and how to closely read the stories of the Marys in Luke. Now on to the episode. I think a good place to start is what is the significance of the parables found only in Luke? The parables are very prominent throughout each of the synoptic gospels, right? You have a lot that show up in all three, but one thing that's always interesting is when you look at, okay, which ones show up in which gospels and why? And so Luke kind of, in a lot of ways, has what I would sort of call like some of our greatest hits parables, right? You have the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the parable of uh, the prodigal son, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and some others that are just sort of the ones that we would probably be most familiar with in our church context that we hear preached from a lot. But I do think in a lot of ways, Luke's parables reflect his own theological viewpoint, like you were saying. And so if we look in our passages from today, which, you know, 17 through the end of the book, you see, for instance, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This parable, you see it really reflecting this Concern that that Luke has about um, sort of this proud inflating of yourself and your own position and this idea that it's really in humility that the kingdom of God is found, right? He has this critique frequently, Jesus does, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but it's really pointed in this particular parable because most of society would say the Pharisee is the one who's done the right thing and the tax collector is the one who's the sinner, which the sinner himself you know, states, but in Luke's understanding of the kingdom of God, the tax collector is the one that gets it right. And so this reversal idea is very big in Luke. Things are the first, you know, the people that you expect, the rich man and the rich man and Lazarus story, right? The people that you expect to be the ones who get it, don't get it. And the people who are sort of outside the kingdom, those are the ones that are brought in. And those are the ones that really, really seem to grasp the kingdom of God. What does Luke mean when he says kingdom of God and how has like our interpretation of what Luke means, like how do we interpret that differently today? I think some things that I would argue he means that we often don't think about when we think about the kingdom of God is Luke has a very um, immediate sense of the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is, is imminent, right? This idea that the kingdom of God is not a completely out there future experience, but on a lot of these parables, like it's, it's here, the kingdom of God is here and now. And I think that's something that we often miss in conversations though. I do think in Luke, and it's hard to talk about Luke without also talking about acts, because I think it's also in there as well. You begin to see this tension point of the birth of the church and the beginning of this reign of the kingdom of God, right? The spirit comes down on the disciples, right? This is this, this new movement and this new era. Um, But that we might be here 
for more of a long haul than maybe was originally expected. So there's this really good book um, in Lucan Studies by the scholar named Konzelman. And he taught his, the name of this, his book is called The Middle of Time in the German. In the English, they translate it into the theology of St. Luke, which I don't know why, because the middle of time is a much better name for a book than the theology of St. Luke. But in this book, he sees that Luke has these ideas of sort of epochs or eras of God's work in the world. And you have this this time of the prophets to John the Baptist, right? So that's mm-hmm. the first time and work of God. And then the time of Jesus, which is the book of Luke, right? And then there's the third time, which is the time of the church, which is the time that we find ourselves in. And so Consulman argues that that's how Luke understood the world, that the time where Jesus was here, it was the, the, the kingdom, but that work was very unique to Jesus's life. Um, and resurrection. And now we're in this third era of time, which is the era of the of the church. Um, and that Luke and maybe a lot of the New Testament writers wrestle with, they didn't necessarily predict this, this third era, so to speak. So I think that's at play um, in the kingdom of God. And so we're living in this third stage, but they never really, like there was an immediacy to what Luke was saying that we, because we're so distant, is hard for us to understand. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I mean, this is not Luke, but Paul, you see that too, right? This idea that the kingdom of God, like, that's why you don't need to get married, right? The kingdom of God is like imminent, right? And we're living in it right now. But I think the that idea still is is valid for our understanding of the church, right? That the church as um, being participating in the kingdom of God, even if it's not fully realized. And I think the other and this, this really does connect to Luke's whole whole worldview. And we get into it with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, but also then in his understanding of the rich young ruler, or actually if you, the rich young ruler is what we call all three, right? But Luke himself just calls him a rich ruler. But in, in that parable, right, he has a lot of wealth and he's done everything that he's supposed to do except for sell all he has. Kind of wanted to talk about that because it's this really fascinating thing that I think for us as Westerners um, should confront the heck out of us because we're all that rich person and it should be uh, confronting to us. So how do we deal with that in the West? Or do we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, eh, that wasn't talking about us like we do with a lot of things that aren't convenient. (laughs) Yeah, that don't make us comfortable. You're right, there's a lot in Luke around wealth that should make us deeply uncomfortable in uh, the Western church. But the, the church has struggled with this throughout church history. There is a large debate about whether or not in this passage, when Jesus says, sell all you have and follow me, that Jesus literally means every single person who becomes a disciple should sell all they have to follow. Um, but one of the unfortunate parts of that debate, which I think is valid and it talks about how we interpret scripture is that we get so hung up on how much does Jesus want us to sell that I think we miss the whole, the, the whole point of this particular story, right? Um, particularly, so this idea of the disciples, when they see this encounter, right, and they see Jesus say, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God idea, than the, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. There their exclamation is who then can be saved, right? That, that's their gut response, right? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? Um, 
And I think it's interesting there that what God responds with man, it's impossible with God, all things are possible. And so this idea that, that even that only through God can the rich find salvation, but that it's extremely, extremely difficult. And I think that's not a question that I think in the church and as pastors, particularly pastors in the West, I don't see a lot of pastors take that seriously. Like it's going to be hard for the people with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think we have that urgency um, with how we preach or how we teach, particularly how we preach or teach Luke. He just seems way more combative in Luke than the other gospels. Like he's taking on power more. Um, there feels like there's some, I don't know if I want to say political undertone to Luke, but there's this idea, yeah. like you said earlier, this like reversal that Luke's mm-hmm. doing. Like they see, like there are two kind of groups of people that they see as in with God, rich people because they have God's favor. That's why they're rich. And the Pharisees, because they're so religious that Mm -hmm. they have this. And so Luke seems to be flipping it. Yeah. And he, he, he is, that's a a great observation. He, he is flipping it. And he's also, um, he cares like very literally about people's hunger and people's poverty Right. In a way. So Matthew sometimes will spiritualize things, but Luke sometimes is called the social justice gospel. Like you'll hear that thrown around, um, which we can argue about like terms and where they come from and stuff like that. But I think what that claim is getting to is Luke is very upfront about, you know, no, it's it's people who are hungry. It's people who are thirsty. Like my mission is for the oppressed. Right. Jesus in Luke four. Like that's his mission statement. Right. It's very on the ground. Yes, it's spiritual, but like it's people's real needs and com- confronting those power systems, I think, comes from that place of he's confronting people's real, real needs in the in that present moment, which is why it comes off. I think it's why people pick up on what they call like social justice, because Jesus isn't just talking about, you know, future in heaven, like he's concerned about people's lives right in that moment. And a lot of people are in, you know, you know, we're experiencing a lot of oppression, a lot of poverty, and Jesus comes out sort of as a champion of them. And I think that's where you're picking up that like combative nature um, because he's championing for these people that society or the powers that be or whoever have mostly dismissed. Yeah, there's a quote from comedian Hannibal Burris. He talks about, um, I don't like it when people say, I'll pray for you. He's like, I don't care if you pray for me, give me a sandwich, I'm hungry. Um, which feels like the Lucan idea of of Jesus. Jesus is concerned mostly with meeting people's needs. I do think that connects to how Luke depicts Jesus. So as you said, each, each gospel has a different emphasis on Jesus, but Luke really depicts Jesus with this prophetic mantle. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament also have this concern, right? So it makes sense that Luke is really emphasizing Jesus in this prophetic vein that Jesus then mirrors the concerns that the prophets throughout the Old Testament have about how we treat people and how we treat the poor and the widow and the outcast and the stranger, right? And so it shows this continuity, I feel like, with the Jewish scriptures, right? Like this is, Jesus is saying, this is who God is, God is in their corner. This is who God cares about, right? Um, Like over and over and over again. And so that, that prophetic speech that Jesus is often invoking in Luke, I think it's very intentional. In Luke, Jesus is a prophet and you should recognize him. Like if you've read, you know, and to Luke's audience, it's like, if you've read the Jewish scriptures, like you're going to recognize Jesus in these things that he says and the ways that he acts. 
Um, have we talked about the significance of Jerusalem in the book of Luke yet? I think that's a great actually tie into where we sort of are right now because uh, Jerusalem becomes, and Chris, you notice this in your reading, like intensely important to Luke. And throughout the travel narrative, which starts in chapter nine, um, where Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem over and over, it's like, and while he was on his way to Jerusalem and while he was on his way to Jerusalem, and then he makes it to Jerusalem, um, which is a unique factor in Luke. So in Mark, yes, the events of Holy Week happen in Jerusalem, but for Mark, the emphasis really is Galilee and the Galilean ministry, but it's all about Jerusalem for Luke. And I think there's two different things going on with that. I think one, it fits this motif of prophets and what happens to prophets when they confront power in Jerusalem. And prophets are often killed in Jerusalem or they're just, you know, bad things happen to prophets in Jerusalem. And Jesus is this prophet going towards Jerusalem. And so the narrative expectation is building, this tension is building. And you, by the time he gets to Jerusalem, I think as a reader, especially if you were a first century reader, you would know what was going to happen, that this was not going to go well. And I think this is in part how Luke answers the question, why did Jesus have to die, right? Why did Jesus die in this way? And I think it's, well, this is what happens to the people who speak God's word when they get to Jerusalem. The second thing that I think is going on is that Jerusalem becomes this very important epicenter for the spread of the church. So Jerusalem especially this gets developed throughout Acts. So when you guys get to Acts, like Jerusalem becomes this epicenter through which, out of which the church expands throughout the whole world to Rome. And throughout Acts, then you get this tension between Jerusalem and Rome and the gospel making it from there to there. So sort of one end of the world to the other end of the world. But Jerusalem is this center center point. So much so that I think Luke goes against some of his source material because in Mark, uh, at the empty tomb, right? What the what the messengers tell the women is like, tell the disciples that he'll be in Galilee like he told you. And so the idea that the resurrection appearances are actually going to be in Galilee, because for Mark, that's where it's important. But in Luke, Luke doesn't even really mention Galilee. Like all the, everything happens in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is narratively where he has to end up. So everything, Galilee takes a backseat and Jerusalem becomes this focus. Mm-hmm. And then as we're kind of talking about the end of Luke, Luke adds these sort of post-resurrection um, experiences or, or maybe resurrection experiences in and of themselves, depending upon how broad your understanding of resurrection is. And so we have this experience um, on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the function of that story in yeah. Luke? Yeah, I think it is, again, it's a uniquely Lucan narrative, and I think it is such a good story and reflects so many of his his themes. Um, one thing that I want to point out is that Jerusalem, again, is mentioned, they're leaving Jerusalem, but then at the end of the story, where do they go? They Straight go back. back. <laughs> that's where you're supposed to oh. be, okay? Like, that's right. where you're supposed to go. Um, and so I think that you see that theme even there. These people are leaving leaving Jerusalem and Jesus finds them and sends them back basically to Jerusalem. Um, but then you see this idea, and this really becomes very important throughout Acts, where Jesus explains how all the scriptures led to this moment and led to Jesus and this explanation of who Jesus is in light of the Jewish scriptures. So you see this in the story. I think you also get some pretty strong um, 
communion Eucharist vibes in this story as well, which we've seen earlier, right, in the Last Supper. But it's in the, he he's at the table, he takes bread, gives thanks for the bread, breaks the bread, and it's in that moment that they recognize who Jesus is. So I think that's also a very powerful Eucharistic image, right, which has been already introduced in Luke and has a very central place in Luke's telling of Holy Week. You see it again here. I joke that, sort of joke, but like the, this passage actually for Methodists and for people from the Wesleyan tradition, um, you can see a lot of um, Wesleyan themes. I joke that maybe Luke would have been a good Methodist, um, but that you see the fact that when they're walking and they're walking with Jesus and they don't know who it is, who he is to me seems like such a perfect image of provenient grace and how we walk with God, but mm. we don't not aware yet of, of who God is like provenient grace. And then in that, that moment of realization of who Jesus is, the breaking of the bread and recognizing who Jesus is like that justification moment, justifying grace. And then in the fact that they can't just stay where they're at, but they have to go, make their way back to where they're supposed to be as that sanctifying grace process in their, their trip back to Jerusalem. So sometimes I use this story as just, it's a really short one, but I think it provides good imagery for what we talk about as Methodists, the three kinds of grace. That's really good. But, so you're saying Luke was a Methodist is what I hear you saying, like through and through. Uh, I think in his heart he was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had a heart strangely warmed. Uh, a couple millennia too soon. Is there value in the layperson keeping an eye out for the function of possessions or money, or maybe there are markers in Luke that might be helpful for people to keep an eye on as they're reading? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you, if you're sitting down and you're trying to read Luke through in its entirety, things to keep an eye out for is, um, think about a note, try to notice or mark down who Jesus includes right? So, so wealth and possession, but also who's inside, who does Jesus say is inside this kingdom and who is outside? Because I think that also gets you into the wealth possessions question. Um, One of the, uh, and this is not in this third section of Luke, but it's such a powerful, powerful story is the, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So I always tell people like pace really close attention to that story because it, I think it highlights pretty much every Lucan theme in there. Um, like you can see pretty much all of what Luke is about is if you read that story really, really closely um, because you get wealth and the, the contrast, um, this reversal, because the rich man is the one who should have a name, but he doesn't have a name, right? We don't know the name, but we do know Lazarus's name who you would think most people would not have bothered to learn this, you know, poor beggar's name, but he's the one that's, he's the, the named character. So there's, there's that theme. There's this, um, again, so you have this reversal that it's actually um, Lazarus who's in paradise and it's the rich man who's not. So that there's that reversal and the, the challenges of wealth and how it's harder to enter the kingdom of God with wealth. But then even more at the end, when Lazarus and or the rich man and Abraham are, are having their back and forth about send Lazarus and, you know, I can't do that. And it's like, well, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers. Right. And what Abraham says is even they have the prophets, they have the law, right. That should point them to this, this truth. Um, but even if a man rises from the dead, they still won't believe, right. Which is foreshadowing 
what's going to come later in this narrative. So I think within that story, you really do get the importance of the scriptures. You get the importance of uh, this reversal of wealth. And then you get um, this foreshadowing of what's going to happen with the resurrection and how people aren't, even though someone will raise from the dead and that's Jesus Christ, that not everyone's going to believe. So I think it's really good one story to focus on. Uh, Jennifer, was there anything that you wanted to point out about Luke that we did not get a chance to talk about? The Marys get um, really conflated, right? So you have Mary, Jesus' mom, you have Mary Magdalene, and you have Mary of Bethany, right? And so especially Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, like their stories mm-hmm. basically get harmonized in one story, even though they're very different characters. Um, and then another weird thing that happens to that is that Mary Magdalene, who is talked about early in Luke, that she's a, a patron of Jesus. Jesus sends, cast out seven demons from her. But it does not say she was a prostitute. Thank anyway, you. Right? But <laughs> she, uh, so what happens is like, oh, she's a prostitute and she's also Mary of Bethany. So then it's just like all the Marys are prostitutes, right? Which none of the Marys are prostitutes and they're different characters. <laughs> um, so that would be another thing to encourage people while they're they're reading, especially if they're reading a story they think they know, is pay attention to what's actually there. Um, Because when you read closely like that, you might see like, oh, that story is not actually what I thought it was. Um, There's some different stuff in there. So that's always my advice. I feel like every interview, everything that I talk about where I mention a Mary, I have to say like she was not a prostitute. (laughs) Thank you, Jennifer, for joining us on this week's podcast and sharing some insights into the gospel of Luke. If you want to hear more from our conversation with Jennifer, be sure to join our Bible Project 2020 group on Facebook. We'll be sharing an additional conversation we had with Jennifer on Satan as a character in Luke and how Judas's story is told and retold throughout the Gospels. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. Chris Hockman produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.